Take a rifle, Bud. That's what I said. But you're a priest. Yes. You'd better pray for me. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to A Raspberry Movie and a Footlong Dog. I'm your host, Warren Cummings, and today I'm going to be joined by a guest contributor, Martin Holmes, who's going to be waxing passionate lyrical about his favourite war film, that of Where Eagles Dare from 1968. And I'll be opening up The Vault of Monochrome and blowing the dust off Yesterday's Enemy, the Second World War, well, rather controversial Second World War film. So let's kick it off with For Where Eagles Dare. Nineteen sixty-eight, oh. lovely. Sat in that that auditorium. Can you imagine such a wonderful burst of colour and absolute stupidity taking place on that screen? So to join me discussing where Eagles Dare, starring, I was going to say Richard Burton. It is Richard Burton. Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. It is. Dicky. Dicky boy. Dicky. Dicky Burton. I have a, a special guest. <laughs> I have broadcaster and podcaster with me. Martin Holmes. Uh, broadsword. <laughs> broadsword calling Danny Boy. Danny Boy calling Broadsword. Come in, Broadsword. Over. Broadsword calling Danny Boy. Hello. Hello. Lovely. Danny Boy. Yes, lovely. <laughs> <coughs> Moving on. So, tell, tell, us, tell us about Where Eagles Dare. Where Eagles Dare. Where Eagles Dare is one of those films. One of those films that I absolutely love. Every single time it comes on, I don't necessarily put it on to watch, but every single time it comes on the telly and it might be 20 minutes in, it might be half hour in, it might be 10 minutes in, I will sit and I'll end up watching all of it. I can't help myself. I suspect it may have become, by default, the one film I've seen more than any other, which is ridiculous because it's a horrifically violent war film and I'm not generally a fan of horrifically violent <laughs> war films. But for some reason, Where Eagles Dare just gets me on a level that I cannot fundamentally understand. I think... It is the most brilliant trap. Most brilliant what? I I think it's the most brilliant trap. Ah. Absolutely. It's a steel trap. I love the plot. I love the intricacy of the plot. I love the way that stuff happens in the first few minutes that has massive bearing later on and they don't even mention it. They just do a thing. They go away. Lots and lots and lots and lots of plot happens. They come back and you go... Oh, that's why they did that. I love that. I love that aspect of it. <laughs> I forgot what the thing is. <laughs> the thing. I forgot what the thing is at the beginning. Oh well, no, for example, well they land, don't they? They. I mean, all all the stuff. Is oh, one of them dies, doesn't he? Mysteriously dies. They're sent yes. on this mission. Their neck. They're sent on their this neck's mission. broken, but it's not broken in a fall, is it? 
Well, they're sent on this mission by Admiral Cartwright. Here he is. In a town called Veffen, at the Schloss Adler, the Castle of the Eagles. And believe me, it's well named. Because only an eagle can get to it. Our job is to get inside there and get him out as soon as possible before they have a chance to get the information from him. How are you so sure that he's there, sir? The Mosquito he was in crash-landed only ten miles away. The Schloss Adler is the headquarters of the German Secret Service in Southern Bavaria. Where else would they take him? He's Admiral Cartwright. Is it the uh, Michael Horton? Lovely Michael Horton. Paddington. Paddington's dad. <laughs> but they're briefed by and Colonel Turner, aren't they? That's right. They're briefed by Colonel Turner, who and uh, for for whatever reason, they uh, have to. They, they this squad is put together. This squad is put together, which consists of a radio operator, uh, Neil McCarthy, and three dodgy geezers and Richard Burton. <laughs> Is it McCarthy or McCartney? William Squire, Peter Barkworth, and Donald Houston. I wouldn't call them dodgy blokes. <laughs> I well, talk about the cream of British acting there. Yes, I know, but what I'm saying is, in terms of the plot, they are dodgy geezers. Yes, they are. They're, they're, they're not quite what they seem to be, are they? Indeed. And, of course, that all sort of un, you know, unfolds beautifully over the course of... The, the reveals in, the, in Where He Was There are astonishing. I mean, there's there's the lovely sequence uh, where where Ferdy Main is being held at gunpoint. Oh yes, yes. Uh, and uh, in this room full of na nasty Nazis. Well, are there any other kind? No, obviously not. Any denials, Lieutenant? Well, it's incredible. Yes, but to the British, very very simple. You were going to give us. Uh, and um, and you've got. <laughs> You've got Richard Burton double, triple, quadruple crossing everybody who's a triple, quadruple, quintuple agent. Exactly. He, and could, he could be anywhere, could he? And there's that wonderful fireside scene. And it, and it unravels. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. You know, you've got um, the lovely, oh, what's his name? Baron Nesby. His name? The, the, no, the, the Canadian actor oh, who's in Robert 999. Robert Beatty, yes. You've got Robert Beatty as... A colonel who's not really a colonel. That's right. He's he's an he's not an actor, was he? He was a he was he he was an actor. He was an yes, actor. He was an actor. Who, yes. Yeah. Because all the plans and the whole thing is is on the the, the, the secrets for the I think is it D Day or you know the, the, there's going to be this offensive that's right, yes. invasion of Europe and and he knows all the plans for it although he doesn't really because he's not the real because he's been planted as well to un un <laughs> unmask these villains these. Um, Double agents. It's very Scooby-Doo, isn't it, by the sounds British of British intelligence. But then the double agents are being managed by another double agent <laughs> who is the guy who sent them in the first place. Isn't and that's that the brilliant? Thing, and, and this is the only thing where the, the casting falls down. Because as soon as... Uh, uh, Patrick Weimark always plays baddies. <laughs> it's there. It's front of you. In the first oh, yes. three With a minutes, very, very sweaty there. top lip. <laughs> And that is a lovely way in which the, he gets they get rid of him, don't they? At the end, oh yes, I think it's oh, yeah. a wonderful Just, way. He goes for a short walk and go for a short walk <laughs> off a long pier or a long pier. Off the a only short problem walk. is that the aeroplane's at twenty thousand feet. Yes, <laughs> but you've you've got your um, you've got your stalls there. You got you can't have a war film without Anton Differing. You can't <laughs> have, and and then you have um, probably Darren Nesbitt. However brief it is, 
best portrayal oh, like, of a Nazi Darren Nes- ever. Darren, yeah, Darren Nesbitt. Uh, I, I, I actually, I, I think he's great in that. Yeah. Thank God you're here, Major. We were just about to... Sit down, Colonel! Everybody remain as he is. Until I find out what exactly is going on here. What do you mean? But surely you can see what's going on. Down. Colonel. It's perfectly simple, Major. The Lieutenant and myself have just uncovered a plot to assassinate the Fuhrer. This is preposterous, Colonel! Sit down. Funnily enough, I was last night. I was watching, of all things, uh, the Invisible Man, uh, the Invisible Man uh, TV series. Oh, right, yeah. I watched the first couple of episodes. I've, I've been watching a lot of fifties uh, television recently. I know this is completely a sidetrack issue, but uh, who turns up as, as shall we say, an Egyptian in the <laughs> desert? But Darren Nesbitt, Marco Polo's biggest enemy. Uh, Darren Nesbitt <laughs> and Peter Salis. Actually, you've basically got um, yes, you've got Egyptian Wallace. <laughs> But you've got you, but, but Darren Nesbitt, and it's kind of like you think this guy, has, his career is so long, yeah. and I I do kind of feel that where he goes there is possibly his highest profile. It point. is, but he's there for such a blink of an eye, isn't he? Oh, but he's he's terrifying. He, he, he is. I mean, he is. I mean, there's the moment when he um, he's. He, he's, he, in, he introduces himself to one of the ladies. Yes. You know, he's, he's being a flirty charmer, and you just know that it's all about finding out information about what's really going on. And you know that you would make one slip with, and he, he is, he, frankly, a terrifying character. It's, it's in this. basically but like obviously being they, a trainee snake charmer, isn't it? With him, your cousin told us to expect you for a shank, but I did. You did not tell me she was as beautiful as this. Thank you. Perhaps when you're ready to take the cave of car to the castle, I will have the honour to escort you. Frolite, it is Oh, yeah, it's it's a great yeah. character. I mean, I, I know. He, uh, well, I mean, I do do spoilers on this. Yeah, show. go I on. And his death's a good one. No, I, I, I know he gets his he gets a bullet he gets a bullet in his forehead. Yes, you know the story about <laughs> I've, um, friends of mine, Andrew and Lisa. Um, mm. Of, as you know from the, the uh, another podcast, um, told me the story about he had to go to hospital. That's right. Still in this full To the local hospital, yes. So that went down well. I, I was shot in the head, he says. <laughs> but he, the story about how he, um, do you know how he um, did some background to find out about the part he was playing? Um, they found a local Nazi. <laughs> and, as you and do Darren arranged to go and see him at his house and what he didn't realise was that the guy still thought he was a Nazi <laughs> and he opened <laughs> the, the door to his house in full SS uniform Ooh. and invited him Ouch. in and there were flags and pictures and it it Ooh. was the most surrealist and dangerous. He felt it's the most dangerous experience he'd ever had in his life because Absolutely. he just did and, not know. And, and inspired Father Ted years later. Yes. <laughs> oh, I hear you're a racist, Father. I hear you're a racist now, Father. What? what? How did you get interested in that type of thing? Said I'm a racist. Everyone's saying it, Father. Should we all be racist now? What's the official line the church is taking on this? 
It's an interesting film. I I genuinely think that I mean it's it's horrifically violent. Yes, it's horrific. But it's also violent. comically I mean, violent. I mean, we have the the the, the, yeah. the famous scene with the machine guns. And Clint oh, Eastwood, well, which Alistair, really Alistair McLean drives me bonkers. Alistair McLean has basically decided that you know that Clint Eastwood can take on the entire <laughs> an entire uh, German uh, not garrison almost and and defeat and the, them with yeah. one. And that gun. wonderful the wonderful thing where they lob grenades down a that, floor. Have you ever seen? Go, have you ever seen? Have you ever seen? Grenades, or rather sticks of dynamite, really bundles of dynamite, lobbed so nonchalantly yeah. as Clint Eastwood does it. It's incredibly. It's the man oozes cool. It's terrifyingly cool. It's so laconic. It's unbelievable. So, oh, sixty-eight. Oh, this yeah. is when he's still making European films. Uh, yeah. You know, to extend his career after Raw. I was going to say he he would have ostensibly been known for westerns but he is yeah, just been doing so spaghetti and he doesn't know why he's been brought along on the operation either does he mm. well this is the again uh, well i mean you could argue he doesn't know why he's been brought along for the movie i mean <laughs> it's, it's, so uh, much it's so, yeah. this is the era when any british film has to have an american star otherwise it can't get distribution deal but um but clint eastwood is your guy i mean 10 years ago it would have been brian don levy oh, you know? he's um he's um yes. <laughs> Possibly yes, but uh, but no. He again. He has. He is the only outsider that can be trusted by by Richard Burton because he, there's no. He has no. Um, he has no sort of irons in the fire of of the spy ring that's going on. You know, uh, the thing is that I, there's one scene I dislike intensely, and that's the when the horrible nasty Nazi gets knifed in the neck while he's listening to the radio. I do think yeah, that's a yeah. little bit. Uh, I've, I find even now I still think, oh bloody hell! Just let him listen to his music. Oh, listen, but, uh, it's a lovely but, music. He's not even being horrible. It's he reading his magazine, isn't he? I know, I know. I mean, it might be a horrible Nazi magazine. I literally don't know. But nevertheless, <laughs> I've never, I've never, fr- I've never freeze framed it. Actually, I just, just realised that. It's probably, it's probably um, film magazine he's reading, and in, in, and, in but, and then and another officer, another. Nazi wanders in and he gets shot point blank range by um mm. well it's probably Clint it's uh, always by, Clint what's his name with his um his silencer and his gun helicopter we have to mention the helicopter briefly yeah all right the anachronistic helicopter yes fair enough a bell helicopter in this, in this wonderfully taut plot I keep going on about yeah there is there is the, the elephant in the, the helicopter in the room helicopter in the room <laughs> yes do you like my helicopter I, I like to think it's a secret. Like, it wasn't just an arrival. He walks away. He actually says to something, do you like my helicopter? <laughs> I like to think it was a secret Nazi experiment. Well, you'd be like the not bell. forgotten about after the war. <laughs> it's, it's, it's von, there's a von Braun, the von Braun of helicopters. <laughs> I think you were right with the von Braun of helicopters. Yeah, he had a bubble front. Um, so, but so action what, what is, is thick and fast. But do, yeah, do you think the lady's got a good part? Um, I think it's it's better than you would imagine. I mean, there is that obviously there is that troubling aspect of sixties uh, films generally is that the, there's a lot of sort of the eye candiness going yeah. on. But they give they do give as as good as the chaps really. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I'll I'll grant you that. Um, or what's her name? Ingrid. Um, Ingrid is oh. probably there because of her. Um, <laughs> her her, her acting assets. Yes. Well, Ingrid is yeah. is not shy at coming forward and saying that people what's do it, not employ me for my acting ability. My what a disguise or something. Sorry. <laughs> 
Doesn't Richard Burton say something like, oh, what a disguise? Yeah, yeah, so she's bursting out of a sort of Heidi-looking <laughs> anger. You can see her coming into a pub with large yes. steins with flowing foam off the top yes. of them almost, can't you? Well, I suppose that is, I mean, to be fair enough, I mean, the, the fact is that in, in resistance movements generally across the Second World War, you know, the women were very much involved mm. in that. So I, I think it does reflect that to a certain extent. And uh, who's the other one? Um, uh, oh, Mary Err. Uh. Mary Err, uh. thank you, yes. <laughs> yes, just tragically died very yes. young. But, um, but uh, Mary Err, uh, again, her role in it is very, you know, it's very, you know, it's very proactive, you know, and... And she doesn't dick about, and uh, um, when, you know, she she doesn't sort of she isn't there just to fall over and be protected and everything. She's there with the machine guns and all this kind of thing. I think that's a quite. It is quite. Um, it's that aspect of it isn't as terrible as it could be, you know. I mean, and what I again the things I like, the things I absolutely adore about uh, where people say this is a terrible spoiler, but you. When they arrive, and like I say, poor old Neil McCarthy has been bumped off in the snow, and the radio operator has been bumped off in the snow, and uh, and we're sort of moving on. You've got your, they've got these infinitely huge bags of dynamite, which seems to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of sticks of dynamite in them. But you know, again, setting that aside, you get these uh, the the wire bombs, you know, the timer yes, bombs. Yes, they attached to the. Uh... On their getaway, are they? Well, this is the thing. They go. Nobody uh, else drives up going. there for an hour. <laughs> no, I know, but but this is what I'm saying. They go and they they set these things up and just on these uh, poles or trees or whatever, and you don't really think about it. Yeah. You know, they just do this scene and they tie they tie these uh, clutches of dynamite and run these wires across the road, which are obviously icy roads. Maybe not people. It is. A, there is a war on you. <laughs> people weren't moving around that much, but anyway. Um, Dynamite is always certainly not rationed. No, but they're never mentioned again. You know, they just set this up and everything like that. And the whole plot now has to work out. I mean, nothing has to go wrong at all for this aspect of the escape to work. You know what I'm saying? The entire everything, as far as proper Mission Impossible stuff. Now, basically, as far as we're concerned. The fact that we've got to assume that Richard Burton is talking with a German in the German all the way through, <laughs> yes. even though we can hear him in perfect Welsh, in perfect uh, Welsh English, it's, it's perfect, lovely Richard Burton tones. We, you know, when they're walking across that bridge and he sort of says, "Ah, and I said to yeah, Fritz, exactly, or I said yes. to Hans, or whatever." <laughs> You would basically have to assume from that point everything they're saying to even Clint, everything they're saying is in German because that's the conceit of the film. <laughs> Right, so all the stuff happens. All the stuntmen get into uh, get into the uh, what do you call them, cable cars. All the all the various you know was it the where stuntmen dare was one of its titles in I think the reviews at the time. Um, you know, but all that stuff happens. The whole stuff at the Schloss happens. All the plot is revealed, and basically the three traitors are being escorted out, or two traitors by the time um, one of them has been kicked out of a window and shot by the Nazis. Uh, and blown, and then various things have happened. So cable cars get exploded, and our heroes have jumped out of another cable car into a into a, uh, a canal. Yes, in, in, in the in middle of winter, time. freezing cold, <laughs> and they've managed to get into this. Bus. And have you noticed they're all dry on the bus? 
Mm. Oh yeah. Well, I mean that again. I mean that happens an awful lot in town. <laughs> you know, people sort of climb out of a canal, and three minutes later, they like the, they've had the, the suit fully pressed again. But uh, they get into this bus and they're making their escape, and they've got to get to the airport. And everything, absolutely everything, from that point has been planned, and it works gorgeous. How I did they it. practice this on Blighty? Precisely, it's just perfection because it's suddenly you have to do this. And the, what what the thing that always gets me about this is that you've got um, what's the name of the actor who was Teal in The Saint? But he plays the German who tries to ring the airport. Oh, with the Irish accent. That's right. So Ivor Dean is a Nazi. But he's doing it in Irish accent to ring the to ring the airport to warn them, right? But as he gets on the phone, the, the the bus drives through these trees and these poles. The poles all collapse, and it's the telephone line. So not only does it block the road, but it cuts off the way of telling the airport that they come. I just think it's genius. <laughs> then, 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 the the actual they they blow up a bridge, which is you know fabulous, lovely model work. And then you have the motorcyclists going after them, don't you? The, yep. And then they get to the airport, and why have they got this snowplow on the bus? Because it takes the tailplanes off all yes, the aircraft that could pursue them. It's beautiful. I love it. You sit there going, oh, that's clever. Then you go, oh, that's clever. Oh, that's clever. Oh, this that's is pure so lunacy, you know. And the, the bus know, is armour-plated. It must be armour-plated. But it makes it, doesn't it? It just makes it a really satisfying filmic experience. That's the point I'm trying to make here. It's not necessarily, okay, you just take a step back and think it in, in practical terms. It's complete nonsense. But actually, in terms of a thrilling cinematic experience, I, I reckon Where Eagles Dare is better in those in terms of rewatching and those sorts of terms than any of the Bond films, yeah. you know, of any of, of lots of thrillers. It really just works in that, oh, that's clever. Oh, that's, maybe I just like clever films. And I just feel, I know it's, it's a stupid, dumb film, but it's so clever. Wouldn't you love to have seen the, um, the planning for that and then building the model? Right, this is what's going to happen here. This is what's going to happen. And they're like looking at them and go, it's totally feasible. It has a snowplow. Well, I think I've, I have read the book. I mean, the McLean book, you know, it, it's all in the book. There's not much, really? there's not much messing around with it. It, 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 it it's, a, you know, a lot of the intricacies of that plot come from, from the book. And it's interesting to me that, because uh, McLean's really quite unfashionable these days. I know quite a lot of his books are even out of print now. But uh, it, it feels more of a steel trap than Navarone does. Yeah. You know, it actually feels a more satisfying filmic experience. I mean, like I say, it's Codswallop, but boy, is it enjoyable, Codswallop. I, I just have to highlight one of the last final scenes. They're in the plane. And, mm. um, Burton's fronting up Weimark. And in the background, Robert Beatty's gone to sleep. <laughs> well, yes. He's just curled up asleep. The, the door is wide open on the plane. It's blowing a hoolie. Oh, he, Robert Beatty's fast asleep. As he should. Absolutely. As he should be. But I, I, yeah, it's yeah. such a wonderful romp. It's it's uh, it's way beyond Boy's Own Tale, isn't it? Oh yeah. I mean, like I say, I mean, you you, you take a step back, and it's a horrifically violent war film, yeah. and is complete hogwash and nonsense. But in and in and of being just a cinematic experience i i absolutely you know it's one of those films that i can genuinely 
genuinely just put in the machine and think, yeah, I'm going to have a good time for the next yeah. two hours. And and I think uh, even yeah, I, I I feel I feel filthy. I feel filthy for watching it. You know? I feel filthy for enjoying it. But yet, I can't help myself. I just sit there and go, oh, yeah, it's where he goes there. I can't not watch this. It's And, of course, it's a cast to die for. I oh, mean, I absolutely. Would mention this absolutely. Cast, but, but, I mean, you know, the, I mean, you get, I mean, I, we talked about Callan on, on another thing. But, you know, you, you've got, what's, it, what's his name? William? Oh, yes. Yes. Callan. Yes. William Squire. But my, the yeah. name's gone. William Squire, yes, thank you. That's going to get cut. Yeah, doesn't doesn't no, <laughs> William no, keep that got in. William he Squire with an axe? Doesn't his hand or something? Uh, well, the two of them, uh, him and uh, who's the other guy? Uh, chap from Ice Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> no, not no Peter. Uh, yes, no, uh, yes. William Squire's already been. Oh he, no, he's, he's, uh, he's done him. No, no, you've got um, you've got a classical actor Peter Donald Barkworth on um, Houston. Uh, when and Peter in Barkworth the, in the cable Peter car. Barkworth. Yeah. Who, Peter Barkworth is um, actually a doing lots of action stuff. You never imagine Peter Buckworth to be an action type person. No, no. Well, he's the nice guy, isn't he? You know. Well, yes, he usually and plays so, a nice guy, and here he doesn't. Yeah. And that's the thing. And Donald Houston was, you know, again, another lead. There were the three of them were they kind all, of lead respectable, yeah, respectable, weren't they? You know? they? They always played nice characters, so they're very... Yeah. I like the way they've, they've cast it against type there. But it's just the way that uh, Donald Houston gets kicked in the oh, in nose. Oh, yes, and it's that horrible scream in the blood. Ah, oh, yeah. yes, you just know he's right. done his jaw and his nose in. Oh, it's horrible, yeah. isn't it? And uh, Peter Barkworth, who seems to be the, the the one that survives the longest, of course, then gets blown up in the um, it, in the other other cave. Yeah. You know, like I said, I, I know, I know, I know it's preposterous. I know it's silly, but I do I do get totally excited by where it goes down because it it just it. I think. You know, I I don't know whether it got a re-release because I didn't go at the cinema much when I was a kid. I I remember seeing a trailer for Where Eagles Dare, uh, and that really weirds me out because I would when it came out I would have been about four years old. Yeah, you know, so it can't have been then. So maybe it was a trailer for when it was on television. Right, I can tell you when maybe. it first came out and tell you over here if you like, hmm? and no, it was a heck of a long time. The twenty sixth mm. of December, nineteen seventy nine, on BBC wow. One. Wow, that is a so long a time. That's twelve, eleven years. Yeah. Isn't it? Actually, eleven yeah. years after release. I mean, I know that there were different rules back then, and maybe it, maybe it was thought too violent. You could release anything modern, yeah. but I wonder whether yeah. because of the costings, it being such. A, I just wonder whether it got a re-release with something else that I saw, or, or I went because I know uh, around about seventy-four, I definitely went to see *Land That Time Forgot* in the cinema. And weirdly enough, because I watched it only the other week and thought, "God, what is this?" I did watch um, in the cinema. I watched *Blazing Saddles*, and I kind of think, well, maybe I saw the trailer. I just like the, you know, the concept of those two juxtaposition films there that you might have seen *Bizarre* isn't City. It? No, it's just weird. It's just weird. I, I, the the films that we saw as children, now they, they wouldn't. You know, the, the the certification is just all over the place. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it, it's weird. I just remember specifically. I remember seeing the trailer for Where Eagles Stay mm. and thinking, Gosh, that's exciting! My sister used to take me for my birthday for, to the cinema, and she would always take me to these Disney True Life. Things. Oh right, yeah. And I would sort of nod off, <laughs> but I think the trailer, I think the trailers used to excite me more sometimes. Yeah, you know these Disney True Life adventures are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll... Uh, oh, there's a trailer for a. But uh, yeah, 
Where Eagles uh, Dare. I tell you, I, I know, I, I know. I, I, I've, I've probably run out of enthusiasm to say now, but I, I just genuinely think, yeah, I think that it's great. Well, I will leave you with the final line. I've just popped it up on Wiki, which is a dangerous thing to do. But it says, years after its debut, where Eagles Dare enjoys a reputation as a classic and is considered by many one of the best war movies ever made. So I think we'll leave it on there. Thank you very much indeed, Martin, for sharing your memories of Where Eagles Dare. Uh, Martin (laughs) is... Well, give a few plugs here, Martin. On his Sunday regular show at seven o'clock on Fab FM Channel One. Martin embarrasses himself in a public place. No, um, it's it's vision on vision on sound. And and tell us very briefly about your other ventures into the world of podcasting for a quick plug. Oh, my other ventures as well. I mean, obviously, I'm another old. Old soak from the uh, around the archives team, and I'm I'm also a co-host with my uh, my colleague uh, Andy Priestner, mm-hmm. who uh, with me we re- we record uh, regular commentaries <laughs> where we almost ignore Flash Gordon <laughs> as as Flash Gordon unfolds on the screen in front of us. We talk about any old nonsense. Ah, so this is and, based uh, on the and we do our and we do our things, yeah. Yes, it is, and uh, we also do our. Um, we do uh, when we're trying to be more serious. We we do our more forensic looks at uh, television drama, which is an A to Z of UK TV drama, which is on hiatus at the moment, but will be back. Fantastic! There you have it, folks. Nothing like a good plug. <laughs> and that was nothing like. A good plug, yes. <laughs> so thank you once again. I usually work to a script, you know. <laughs> As we slowly fade in the music from Where Eagles Dare. Thank you very much indeed, Martin. I love those drums. Don't you love those drums? Well, thank you for Martin there for looking at the uh, brightly coloured and uh, all thumping action of Where Eagles Dare. Now we change the tone slightly as we enter the world of monochrome as I open up the vault of monochrome to take a look at the black and white hammer production of Yesterday's Enemy. I open with a question, the same question I will close on, because for me there is no hard and fast answer. And after viewing Yesterday's Enemy, you may well find it's just as hard to attach an answer to the question. The question is, is it possible to balance humanity and duty in the same instant during a time of conflict. Hammer Films was so impressed by Peter R. Newman's television play Yesterday's Enemy, upon its transmission on the BBC in the early 1950s, they wanted to tap into the market of critical acclaim that it garnished. But beware, with critical acclaim comes the unforgiving pen of the critic. And in the case of this television play, they were divided. The positive reviews were glowing, the negative claimed that Newman was anti-British and anti-army. This was never the case. He was a well-travelled man who'd worked his way around the world through passages on international cargo and passenger ships. He travelled to the far-flung and well-known, but he got tired of his travels and hearkened for the stability of a full-time job, with a chance of setting up some roots and engaging in his passion of writing. During the Second World War, he enlisted into the RAF and worked in the area of intelligence. But, rather than being fired up to write spy novels, he chose to engage with his audience's conscience and tempted them into debating 
his plays and the moral messages that they read into them. On the 14th of October 1958, transmitted live on the BBC, Newman's play was in three acts and watching that play was producer Michael Carreras, managing director of Hammer Films. So impressed by the play, he contacted Newman the following day about engaging him to write the play into a screenplay. Carreras, a man not to shy away from the controversial, had experienced critical acclaim for Hammer's Camp on Blood Island, a Japanese v British war film. Newman, with no experience of screenwriting, embarked on a quick structural change without losing the impact of the storyline. Within nine days he completed the script and submitted it to Carreras personally. Carreras had a knack of tampering and rewriting scripts, much to the disdain of writers, and placing his name in the title as, as the lead writer. But not this time. This time it was Newman's work. It was so rock solid, it, it did, didn't need that hammer sheen. In fact, the grimmer, the better. So the scene was set and yesterday's enemy was ready to go into production on two stages. Yes, two different sound stages in two different studio lots. The jungle scenes were shot at Bray and the jungle village was constructed at Shepperton. In fact, such was the complexity of the set at Bray and for obvious space and expenditure regions, a revolving set was constructed to give the impression of an ever-changing jungle. At Shepperton, well, they had a great old time blowing up the jungle huts in the Japanese assault on the village. So much so, one of the enthusiastic pyrotechnics detonated and set fire to the studio roof, and the local brigade had to be called to put the fire out. Production went ahead as an all-studio affair, and to be honest, you're so drawn into the story and its characters, you don't even register the fact there's no outside filming. It's enthralling, and I don't say that lightly. Casting kept two of the original cast members from the TV play. Burke Walt was an unnamed soldier, an uncredited Japanese soldier. And the dependable sergeant, well, that was reprised by the great Gordon Jackson, a man who regarded his acting just as a job and nothing special, a man who would become a legend both on the silver and the small screen in the latter years. For the captain of the handful of British soldiers, they needed a hard and implacable actor. They didn't want a Dickie Attenborough or Johnny Mills type. The film isn't one of those. Is there jam for tea after I've dealt with those beastly Hun types? So they went for straight-talking and solid-jawed Stanley Baker, who demonstrates his no-messing credentials in such films as Hell Drivers. Brian Forbes is really just an extra as a, one of the British soldiers, as is Zedkar's actor Barry Lowe as a dependable whinging Tommy. A war film is never a war film without David Lodge or Percy Herbert. And as for the Padre, well, he's a familiar face of Guy Rolf. There is a civilian newspaper reporter within the ranks, played by, well, played with style and panache by the rather rotund Leo McKern. He is the only connection with us, the audience, as he has no military experience, nor competence to pick up and fire a rifle. But as we shall see later, that all changes. So let's hit the plot running, shall we? The script is tight, so tight it bulges with moral, philosophical and humanitarian questions. It's a film that would have been viewed by people who had either experienced the home front or taken to arms against the aggressors of their way of life. This is not a comfortable watch. It gives you time to breathe and try and take stock of why the characters act the way they do. But more importantly, it challenges its audience to question their belief in others and how we go about keeping each other safe during times of conflict.
Burma, during the 1940s, we join our band of exhausted soldiers desperately making their way back to the British lines, some 40 miles through some pretty intensive jungle. They have a seriously wounded brigadier who is, is stretched by the exhausted group, so exhausted they almost drown the poor sod as they navigate the unhygienic swamps of the jungle. The captain won't stop. He drives his men to beyond breaking point. The atmosphere is taut and the chance of enemy attack is constant. So there's just no time to rest. It's just not safe. The radio operator is so exhausted he falls under the surface of the water and is dragged up by the others. The radio set is saturated and doesn't work after that. The captain berates his men, driving home his agenda to get home so they can rest then. They reach a clearing and he is persuaded by the padre and the doctor to rest for a short while. The captain states the Japanese could be right behind them and whilst they keep moving, they're more of a difficult target to kill. He sends an advance guard to scout out the land ahead. They return to report there's a nearby village with the locals wandering around within its grounds. The British soldiers are deployed to the outskirts of the camp and sensing impending danger, the locals run inside their bamboo huts. The British surround the village, unaware that the Japanese are in all the main huts and aware that the British are there. A firefight takes place, so it's no nicey-nicey all fall down when shot piece, like the patriotic war films of the late 40s and 50s. This is a massacre of the Japanese, plain and simple. There can't be any survivors to escape. One hint of an enemy nearby, reinforcements could rain down them at any moment. British and Japanese soldiers are gunned down in equal measure, and to reinforce this at the end of the short-lived battle, both sides dead are laid out in the village square. No favouritism here, as we hear the captain state that everybody, whoever side they're on, should be thrown into one big mass burial pit. No time for ceremony, says the captain. He has no interest in the dead, only the living. And there's no time for the Padre's nonsense of a service. Amongst the dead is a Japanese colonel who is with a Burmese civilian. Who tr- they both tried to make a break for it. The civilian, a man, claims not to understand English. He's taken prisoner and held in the main hut. The captain attempts to question this man, who just plays dumb. So he just turns to one of his soldiers and tells him to take outside and shoot him because he's absolutely no use to him alive. The man suddenly states he understands English, but yet again uh, denies understanding what the Japanese colonel was doing and uh, what the map was. Uh, He points to bits on the map and says, what's this? And he just, I have no idea. The captain is so focused on his own duty that he is willing to take any steps necessary to obtain that information from the man about what's on the map and what the colonel was doing there. And when I say any steps, please remember that because we are heading full steam towards the most heinous act of murderous intent seen in any British war film at this time. One that would shock the audience and revive memories from the old soldiers of the Burma campaign. Meanwhile, in the other hut, the medical supplies are dwindling and one soldier is being held down by the padre and the newspaper reporter as the doctor must amputate his arm. 
The situation is beyond grim and all desperate. They need that seed of hope that will refocus them. Unfortunately, it comes in comforting of the dead and the dying, and not through them uh, any kind of military breakthrough. One of the Japanese soldiers has survived and is pursued by a group of British soldiers. Moments earlier, one of them is being over-amorous with a local girl, and the next, he's in the jungle being knifed brutally by the enemy soldier. But exactly who is the enemy? After all, these are just people wearing uniforms and being told what to do. After the soldiers return, the captain returns to the man who was found with the colonel and confronts him. With ice-cold determination and without emotion or waver in his voice, he draws his revolver and points it at him, watched on by the padre and the newspaper reporter. How can I explain what I do not know? I shall count up to five. If you don't answer, I shall shoot you. He reholsters his pistol, realising that this form of interrogation just isn't going to work. He must know what he knows at any cost. At any cost. Baker is just mesmerising as a captain, an unwavering masterclass of being a heartless and unemotional machine, a man driven by duty and no care for consequence of that devotion. In essence, he's a blinkered bastard. The captain informs the sergeant the man doesn't believe that he will be shot, so he needs to demonstrate that he is serious. I'm not going to describe what happens next. I'll let the clip do the talking. Those villagers, take out two of their men and line them up in front of the firing squad. You can watch, Hackingbar. If you've gone stark raving mad and you're bluffing... No, Padre, I'm not bluffing. You heard me, sergeant. Take two of the villagers and put them in front of a firing squad and wait for my order. Wait, sergeant. Wait. You can't be serious. You just can't shoot them down like that in cold blood. I'm in command here. That doesn't give me the right to shoot civilians. Carry on, Sergeant. Sergeant, it's not my place at the moment to tell you what to do, but in the name of mercy, I ask you to wait for a few moments. Very well, sir. But only for a few moments. Don't be insane. You'll wait for just as long as the Major orders you. Captain Lank was my commanding officer, so I'm not the partner. All right, Sergeant, all right. Now, you listen to me, Adam. You're tired. You're not in any fit condition to make a decision like this. Don't you see? I'm doing what I have to do, no more, no less. I believe the markings on that Japanese map are important. I believe this informer knows where they are, and I'm going to make him talk. But I'm not concerned with the methods I use. Yes, but two civilians. Why? In the name of reason, why? If you want my opinion... I don't believe your opinion will make any difference. You're going to get it anyway. Two people's lives depend on what's... Go ahead, Sergeant. Very good, sir. Sergeant. This will be a war crime. Do you realize that? Do you know what you're doing? I said, but I'm not so sure that you do. This is the first time that a British officer declares that if this act goes ahead, it's a war crime. Sobering thought there. Nevertheless, they round up one elderly man, one young man. They blindfold them and form them up in a straight line and place a firing squad in front of them. The prisoner is forced to watch the demonstration, the captain forcing his head back to watch, making sure his message lands directly home. You can only imagine the rest. I mean, this doesn't happen in the cosy world created by people like Johnny Mills in his war films. This is real. It feels real. It hurts. It wounds. It burns. The reality of necessity or a war crime? It's the audience choice. 
even watching it now, I can never balance up the captain's actions with any necessity of the situation. After the lethal demonstration, the prisoner explains everything to the captain. The map is well has prominence in what's happening in the war at the moment and the peril it places the front line in of the British lines. The captain changes tack and tells the prince that because he has cooperated, he can now move around the village unguarded. He uses no threats, he just tells him nicely not to leave the confines of the village. Once he leaves the hut, happy and convinced of his newfound longevity, the captain instructs the sergeant to take him out to the jungle and execute him without anybody noticing. Using the rationale that he can't be allowed to escape and tell the Japanese of the ownership of the map. Sometime later in the jungle, Japanese soldiers are seen approaching the, from the river. The captain puts his men on standby and orders the sergeant to take the map and make a break for the Allied lines with the padre and the newspaper reporter. What follows now is a mastery of wordplay and resilience from both the padre and the newspaper reporter, both refusing to leave and taking up arms to defend the village. Our chances of getting away from here are about ten to one against. Exactly. And those will be of no use to here. You thought you'd give us a chance of getting out of it. You are no use to me here, so why don't you get the hell away? If we go with a sergeant, we may delay him. And I at least am older and less fit. You give us a rifle each and send two of the younger soldiers in that place. You take a rifle, Padre. That's what I said. But you're a priest. Yes. You'd better pray for me. You'd be more use back at headquarters. No, I don't think so. They're short of doctors. They're not short of priests now. My place is here. There's an ambush and the soldiers are shot down in large numbers. The captain receives a, a chest wound. The sergeant and his party make it into the jungle where they too are ambushed and, well, there's no happy endings. It's just reality. Now the British take the turn to be the POWs and the captain is interrogated by the Japanese captain. The tables are turned and his methods of persuasion are just as brutal as the British captain's. He picks on a lieutenant who is scared and shown earlier to have a severe case of cowardice. He's placed in front of a firing squad and the soldiers aim their rifles at him. His defiance is generated more through fear than duty. The firing squad is stopped and he is released, not before the Japanese captain whispers to him before he moves away, go back and tell them what it feels like. What is your rank? I'm a lieutenant. A full lieutenant? Second lieutenant. You will answer my questions, please. I have nothing to say to you. Possibly not at the moment. However, I must persuade you to answer. Whatever the questions, I have nothing to say. It is my belief that when your forces came to this place, you came across a high-ranking Japanese officer and some soldiers. What happened to them? My name is Hastings. I'm a second lieutenant. My number is... They're in the hut now, under guard. The injured radio operator tells them the set is working, but the Japs don't know it. The other people that had suffered from their wounds, like the brigadier and other people shot, have just perished because there's nobody looking after them. I know, I know. That's what makes it so bloody funny. We must all be prepared to die for the cause. For nothing. That isn't true, Max. Isn't it? Lose a limb. Or your eyes, or your sanity, you'll find out. Your grateful country will reward you with a stinking pension. 
He dies from his wounds, the radio operator, and the Japanese captain's patient is wearing extremely thin and removes everyone from the hut and lines them up in front of his firing squad. No blindfolds, just looking straight down the barrels of the rifles. He demands to know what information the British captain has regarding the Japanese troop movements. The captain refuses to tell him anything. Whilst the Japanese officer leaves the captain, he makes a dive for the radio and is shot dead. The officer returns and states, that is what I would have done. He steps out to the firing squad. The camera turns through the window of the hut and to the next victims of the rifle. An apathetic priest, a belligerent reporter, a sole soldier and a cowardice of an officer. In the background, the British radio chirps into life and the camera pans down onto it as the shots ring out. So, I ask my question to you again. Is it possible to balance humanity and duty in the same instant during the time of conflict? And that is really yesterday's enemy. If you want a story that changes the mould of the 1950s war film and removes that cosy half-rug from beneath you, I highly recommend it. If you prefer your black-and-white war films cosier, the shelves are full of drum-thumping patriotic stories. Thanks for listening and giving this film a consideration. A consideration which, in my eyes, is humbly overdue. The deaths of these Burmese are entirely my responsibility. If anyone's head rolls when we get back, it'll be mine. May God have mercy on us. Well, thank you very much for listening to this edition of A Raspberry Mivy and a Footlong Dog. I hope you've enjoyed it. So please let us know uh, via our Twitter. We have a blog um, and we're available on all sorts of platforms. A pass the word would be greatly appreciated. I hope you really enjoyed this edition. And if you want to uh, contribute in any shape or form, please let me know. So I'm Warren Cummings signing off and I'll see you again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>